Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, he's back, he's three of Poland and I'm sure he has a lot of thoughts about which members of the England squad have big dick energy. It's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? (laughs) Hey man, I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I've recovered from last week in which I uh, disintegrated into a puddle of tears (laughs) and pollen um and yeah i'm kind of all right now i'm on a level i've uh i've kind of uh, evened out a steady course of uh of uh, prescription narcotics of uh, nice. of, uh you know kind of seen me right but you're right i do have a, a sickness of what you know I'm, i've got a heavy dose of world cup fever mm. and yeah this whole big dick energy <laughs> thing i don't know where that's come from that's a, that's a very last week thing to happen yeah um i don't know what it is and i don't want it i don't have it definitely i'm <laughs> very kind of small dick energy just kind of sitting around drinking tea eating maltesers i i definitely feel like if there's what going to be one criteria for people who don't have big dick energy it's podcasters yeah definitely definitely not kind of a limp dick energy um, <laughs> possibly but yeah um the world cup is in full swing and um i'm someone who used to love football like mm-hmm. you know used to you know go and see my local team very regularly and know all the players' names and things and their squad numbers and have the sticker books. And and then even into, like, kind of my 20s and early 30s, I was kind of like, you know, I'd keep a keen eye on it. One of my favourite things to do was to watch Match of the Day on a Saturday evening without knowing the scores, uh, which was, you know, one of the simple pleasures in life. And then the last kind of five, six years, I've just been like, you know, I'm actually embarrassed to watch football. I'm actually embarrassed because, you know, there's there's so much of the, the... I don't want to sound like a granddad, but there's so much, like, flopping and, like, rolling mm. around on the floor and stuff and, like, like deliberately cheating. Um, yeah. That I just kind of, like... I, I think I took a step back. For, I didn't watch it for a season. And I took a step back and looked at it, and I was like, this is... Oh, this is bad. And then I realised yeah. how, like, American sports fans and other sports fans around the world who don't have like football as their main sport view football and it's like you know they're kind of embarrassed to watch a sport where people are <laughs> pretending to be hurt in order to you know and the fact that you know as a self-fulfilling prophecy the uh, the powers that be in football have let it happen they could have stamped it out years ago but no here we are but <laughs> that said it's the world cup ed and yeah. everyone's excited it's goals galore um there's uh, he's got a foot like a traction engine and he's got a goal pile <laughs> over his face <laughs> um, there's been it's been uh, constant goals, constant screamers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also been some good comedy goals. Um, I saw a goal today in the uh, Croatia Denmark game, which was like a kind of uh, a slapstick game of pinball involving <laughs> a Denmark player's face. Uh, it was pretty cool. And yeah, they have like instant replays now, which is su- such a stupid system. It's like in other sports that you know. It's you've seen. They're like, oh, this will this will stop bad decisions. Well, yes, it will. But it'll also have players who will play the system, and they'll be like, technically, it hit his finger. It's a penalty, right? And they're like, okay, we'll have to give that now because we've just seen it in slow motion. It did technically hit his finger. Um, and yeah, now we've got people gaming the system. I think we're going to find out that Putin's been behind all the results. <laughs> He's in his little room with his VAR thing. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just super into it. And like you know, for someone who two weeks ago. Uh, actually went through the England squad and I only knew 12 people yeah. in the England squad. Um, uh, I'm now, you know, I'm the, the, like the biggest fan of all of them. 
uh, and um, I'm hoping our brave boys can get a result against Colombia in two days' time. Well, actually, I don't. I actually like Colombians <laughs> more than English people. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope Colombia will. I'll be wearing my Colombia shirt anyway. Yeah, I, I have definitely caught a bit of the, the old World Cup fever. I've seen most every game, I think, uh, through various streaming sites, uh, particularly Telemundo's streaming sites, which up until a couple of days ago was free to view. And now you can only watch half an hour of football before they say you have to have a subscription. But um, <sighs> It's like that, that 10, 10 minutes, like in the old day, I don't know if you remember this, but like yeah. uh, UK living on... on on the uh, on British Sky, you used to have like ten minutes of like the Playboy Channel, it's right. like a free taster, and then mm-hmm. you had to pay for it after that. It's that equivalent. It's prick teasing with football. Yeah, you don't get to hear quite as many large Latin men screaming "goal" for like <laughs> an insane, like a Bill Withers lovely day length of time, uh, <laughs> which is uh, which is a shame really because that is the absolute joy of of their commentary is just how relentlessly enthusiastic they are about even the, the kind of the dullest game although most of the games have been i think pretty fun there's not been that many where i've felt like it was wasted effort there's been lots of opportunities even in like uh the the the, the game uh i think today was it spain got knocked out um, spain spain russia today yeah it yeah. went to the to penalties yeah it was still kind of gripping uh and in terms of comedy goals i think my favorite still was in the Argentina Croatia map, uh, match a couple of weeks ago, mm. where just where the defender kicked it back to the goalie, the goalie kicked it, it went straight to mm. one of the the opposing side, and they just kicked it straight in. It mm. really was kind of like that moment where I had a real like like Proustian rush back to playing football when I was like ten and being like, oh yeah, that's what I would do when I got put in goal because <laughs> I wasn't very good. <laughs> mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, there's lots of schoolboy <laughs> stuff going on. Yeah. But it, it's been, it has been uh, really delightful, even if a lot of the uh, Americans I work with aren't that enthusiastic about it, either because obviously the USA aren't in it, uh, or because they just don't particularly like the game. But it's it's quite nice, you know, whenever England play, suddenly my uh, Slack uh, DMs suddenly get uh, chock full of people asking me if I'm watching it and what I think of our chances. So it's kind of like, mm. uh, I mean, I don't really like you. I also don't know who most of the players are, <laughs> but uh, I think uh, this, seemed, this team seems good. Uh, mm. and, and we managed to win by losing by getting put into the easiest bracket, which I think is uh, probably the, the the best thing we could have hoped for. Mm. That was kind of a weird Kafka-esque kind of game where both <laughs> teams went into it needing to reserve their best players' energy but also finish second in the group. Yeah. It was like this kind of anti-football game of people. And then one, one team took the lead. I was like, why did they do that? What, what were they thinking? <laughs> um, and then I was like, I wonder... And there was a whole thing where, like, if they drew, it would be the team with the least yellow cards would go through. Yeah. And then I was like... Well, if we find ourselves drawing, are we going to start like fouling like, in the last five <laughs> minutes just to try and just you know like kind of time wasting, you know, just kind of maybe you know flagging off the ref or something, whether yeah. they could get them in the book just to qualify? And I'd be like, well, that'd be an interesting pub quiz question in the future. Yeah, it, it was. It made me wonder if it was going to turn into like the football equivalent of it. Is it pursuit the? Olympic cycling one where the point is to kind of, where at certain points people just kind of like 
are stuck still on their bike because they don't want to go in front because if you go in front you'll run out of energy and like it's a really mm. weird one where you watch it and a large part of the is just like a standoff between two static cyclists kind of like muscle tensed to kind of stay upright without having to put their feet on the ground and that's kind of what the england belgium match kind of felt like to me Mm. I think there's only one way to liven up those kind of dead rubber games, which is to like release live animals onto the pitch. Mm. My friend Lewis, years and years ago, said that, and uh, uh, listened to the show, Lewis Davis, uh, no relation, he said that all sports could be improved by crossing them with wrestling, because mm. who wouldn't get such joy out of watching a game where it's England, Belgium, it's tied, and then suddenly goes, oh my god, that's Spain's music! And they're like... <laughs> they just start running on and things turn into absolute chaos. Or, oh, like, every two minutes, like a Royal Rumble, another character, another, like, player from another team has to come <laughs> on. And who knows whose side he's on, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or Maradona kind of comes out of retirement and just barrels onto the onto the t- onto the uh, pitch. Yeah, bag of like gack under his arm, just like freewheeling around, <laughs> throwing punches. But it's, uh, I think, yeah, if you started a game with two players, one of each nationality, and then every two <laughs> minutes another one enters until, <laughs> until you've got this free for all. And then the, 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 the guy who's, who scores the goal at the end of the game wins the whole World Cup for himself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so FIFA for 2022, we've got some changes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not enough that you're playing in a desert in the winter. <laughs> yeah, let's really go go to town and make this a World Cup to remember. Yeah, so uh, that's enough football for the moment until next week when I'm sure we'll either be jubilant or despondent. At the uh... no, I think by, by next week, like, if England win on Tuesday, mm-hmm. their quarterfinal will be on Saturday. So oh. um, will we still be in the tournament by this time next weekend? I'm going to say yes. Okay. I think if we beat if we beat Colombia then I think we've got a pretty good shot at making it all the way to the final now that Spain are out. Mm, yeah. But yeah, it's a big I think, I think we're going to crash and burn in spectacular fashion. Yeah, it's really one of the two options, isn't it? That's the only way England goes. Yeah. Yeah, they're not just going to squeak through, are they? No. So, uh and whatever happens, we're just going to get crushed into <laughs> final against Brazil. Mm, yeah, likely. In terms of news, uh, we've got a, a couple of weeks have passed, obviously, since we last recorded an episode. Uh, there's not been a huge number of news stories that have broken in that time, but I want to go back to a story that you and I talked about on our uh, episode that we couldn't put out two weeks ago because uh, your internet went down. Mm-hmm. But uh, I want to revisit it because of how things have unfolded, and that is the scandal surrounding chris hardwick who is as uh, people probably know a tv presenter comedian you say they'll uh, probably know it they might know yeah they might they've they for some people this may be the first time they're ever hearing of him but like tv presenter the former kind of founder well i guess still founder but former ceo of nerdist the kind of like um nerd and pop culture empire that he he funded he founded and sold a couple of years ago who who's ex-girlfriend Chloe Dixtra published a medium post in which she talked about a, a, an abusive relationship which she didn't name the the person but it was pretty clear from the references in it who she was talking about and obviously people knowing that she and Chris Hardwick had dated for some time and that story broke kind of a couple of weeks ago and what's I found very striking in the last two weeks is the relative silence of a lot of people 
in like the LA comedy and podcasting world surrounding it, people who know Chris Hardwick and have worked with him at various points, who in many cases have been perfectly willing to step forward and talk about, you know, people like Kevin Spacey or Harvey Weinstein, these these people involved kind of in their same industry, but not quite the same. And, you know, been very quick to denounce them and to say, you know, believe women and everything. But with a handful of exceptions, a lot of them have been pretty quiet about this whole thing, which I think is, is a very telling about the way in which, uh, you know, industries protect abusers, if, if, even if it's just like not being willing to say anything either way, just basically saying, yeah, I'm not going to talk about this. Mm, I mean, some people have said the classic, oh, this is big news. I'm going to need some time to unpack it and process mm-hmm. it. But yeah. then, you know, they seem to take that time to just not mention it for a couple of days and hope everyone's forgotten about it. That yeah. they haven't had to take a stance on it because obviously it would, it's that kind of thing. Are you By not saying anything, you're saying, well, I do believe women unless it's against one of my mates. Or like, I do believe women, but I don't want to say anything that could lose me a job or mm. that could harm my chances of getting employment at a future date either because this person has a lot of lucrative connections which i have used in the past or you know because they will you know badmouth me around town if once this is cleared over and they have suffered zero consequences for it mm. uh, and, and on one level i'm like i've not been in this sort of situation i've not been in that position i'm sure that it is very difficult for people to like denounce someone that they've known for a very very long time especially if they may not have known that all this was going on at the same time. Like it does seem when people are just like deciding that they are making a conscious choice not to talk about it uh, in a way that is kind of like disheartening when you consider that a lot of these people are, you know, very liberal and very outspoken about wanting to create a better industry where uh, abuse and harassment don't happen. Mm. I, I thought it was telling like when, it happened with Louis C.K. So many mm. other comedians said something along the lines of, I'd heard the rumours before, but now this is confirmed that it's true and I'm kind of livid with Louis and I've let him know and, you know, you know, words to the effect of what he's done is, you know, terrible and I hope mm. that the victims of, of what's happened can, you know, get back what they lost from those... Uh, the times that he, he took away from them. Now that yeah. was like multiple people said that high profile people, like that was pretty much a kind of um, verbatim what Sarah Silverman said, yeah. who um, perhaps doesn't stand to lose as much as other people maybe, but it's still a very strong statement one way or the other, um, which is what many more people should be coming out. Maybe it's just a, uh, a you know, people kind of, they generally don't know who Chris Hardwick is. <laughs> Mm. they can kind of get away with saying yeah yeah i don't want to have anything to do with him in the first place yeah the the people the most high profile person i think i've seen take a stand on who is part could be considered part of that community was owen ellickson who is a kind of a twitter personality most famous for his series of tweets like uh, during the election where he would tweet out fake transcripts of like overheard conversations within the trump campaign which Mm -hmm. got a lot of retweets and were very very funny and writes for a bunch of tv shows 
uh, now. So he's not exactly the biggest name, but he has been very forthright in saying, no, you need to call out this shit. And he had a very good thread the other day kind of pointing out why the people who have come forward to support Hardwick, which is happening more and more, are full of shit and why it is it makes no sense to think that Chloe Dixtra is lying about all this or just smearing him because like the world in which that is possible is a completely insane one where in his words she's a hand that rocks the cradle-esque kind of like supervillain who kind of planned all this out months in advance but like he like he still is not like one of the most high profile people he's high profile in like alt comedy twitter but like he's not necessarily someone who has all that power and maybe that's why he feels he can say it is because he doesn't really have that much to lose he doesn't depend upon chris hardwick for future jobs he's just a jobbing comedy writer mm. uh, and those seem to be the people who are willing to step forward as opposed to people who maybe have benefited or aided hardwick's rise over the years yeah yeah i mean has he been has Hardwick been removed from the because he's most famous for doing like the talking after mm. shows isn't he yeah. Talking Dead and Talking Bad and all those kind of things. Has he been removed from those? Because isn't there a new one starting? Is he even got like a talk yes. show starting as well? He, yeah, he was going to be the front man of a late night talk show. Finally, another great late night talk show uh, hosted by a straight white man, Just What We mm. Need, in 2018, uh, which was going to be called Just Talking with Chris Hardwick, and that is currently on ice i don't know if it's been completely cancelled but amc you know stepped forward and said you know we're during at this moment we don't want to be associated with this so they removed him from any of their events at comic-con and things like that so there were he has suffered like consequences for this in a fairly kind of like public way but after that initial burst of energy like there hasn't been a lot of follow-up and i wonder if it's just like because it's ultimately harder to generate interest from like a media perspective on a story where it is just like one kind of known instance of abuse as opposed to like the ck thing where you were talking about like dozens and dozens of women coming forward with their stories or or obviously weinstein and kevin spacey where you had a lot of people coming forward with details which kind of created a picture whereas a lot of people seem to find it easier to tune out a case where it's just one person saying like yeah this this person was an absolute shit to me for a, a, a tremendous length of time and caused me immense physical and emotional distress mm, yeah totally uh our other kind of news story this week that got my attention just because it was it was just so stupid like every stage of it was absolutely stupid was the controversy surrounding david lynch who gave an interview kind of tying in to the new biography that's come out about him, or auto, semi-biography, autobiography, uh, Room to Dream, where he he got onto the subject of Donald Trump, and he said in the interview that, you know, maybe Donald Trump could go down as one of the greatest presidents in history, in his view, because, like, his election could be such a disruption to the system that it would kind of, like, bring all of this hate and corruption up to the surface and, you know, could kind of lead to kind of great change. Which uh, I would say is an immensely stupid thing to say because, mm -hmm. and certainly an immensely stupid thing to say because of it comes from a place of tremendous privilege as like a, a fairly successful, insulated 71 year old 
director who regardless of kind of what happens over the next couple of years apart from you know nuclear war is probably going to be fine about all this sort of stuff that's going on it doesn't really take into account the awful awful things that donald trump has already done and his administration continues to do so uh, i think it's an intro incredibly stupid thing but then what happened was like IndieWire came out with a clickbait headline, which was like Don- uh, David Lynch says Donald Trump could be one of the greatest presidents. That kind of got retweeted a lot, and other people used that as a jumping-off point. Eventually, Breitbart wrote an article about it, and it ended up being retweeted by Donald Trump himself. And just everything about it for me was so angering because, like, the initial thing was just a dumb thing that Lynch sort of said. Then it was people taking it out of context even like even though it was stupid in context but making it seem like far more nefarious than it was and then and then it, it then touching into the like the alt-right maga sphere and becoming this entirely other thing and it was just a really depressing story that kind of overlapped a lot of weird it was really weird seeing this overlap between like film twitter and politics twitter uh, reacting to the story Mm. I bet James Woods was reading it thinking, oh, I might get a good part out of this. Mm-hmm. Thinking that yeah. maybe uh, um, Lynch was coming out as a, uh, a MAGA person. Adam Baldwin was on the phone <laughs> right away. On standby. Um, yeah, it was a very stupid thing to have happened. Um, the, did Trump go through the whole cycle of, oh, pleased to have you know acclaimed filmmaker David Lynch on my side? And then within, when realising what had happened and seeing the counter quotes, be like, oh, he's overrated anyway. Uh, I don't think he really kind of thought about it much. He just retweeted the Breitbart article. Uh, and then, you mean or, Donald I, Trump didn't think about it much? I'm surprised. Mm. Stunned. I don't remember seeing him also responding to, like, Lynch's kind of apology afterwards where he says, you know, like, what I said uh, wasn't particularly uh, smart and then saying that he doesn't agree with what Trump is doing and that Trump still has time to turn the ship around and everything, so... Which I also thought was kind of like a real milquetoast thing to say when uh, clearly he has no interest in turning the boat around. Um, but yeah, he at least then, it would have been at least been slightly gratifying if then he he had seen, if Trump had seen the apology and then just been kind of like uh, Mulholland Drive was incoherent or something. You know, he had kind of like grabbed at some criticism to throw out against him. Mm, yeah, Dune overrated. Preferred Jodorowsky's uh, version. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and that was also was like the, the only kind of like funny thing about it was all the people making jokes. One, the joke saying like, if nothing else, Donald Trump, Donald Trump has got David Lynch to explain something, mm-hmm. which uh, it was it was definitely uh, unexpected, an unexpected an unexpected sentence to ever say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other being, you know, all the people saying making jokes about like imagining all of the. Uh, uh, Trump fans rushing out to buy like the Blu-ray set of Twin Peaks: The Return and watching all eighteen hours of it, and like thinking like uh, and being kind of like exposed to uh, the one of the more obtuse artists of of the twentieth century. Mm, yeah, yeah, totally. Maybe they they found maybe something to relate to in like the straight story, maybe because they've got tractors, I guess. People mm-hmm. would maybe like to. I reckon Alvin Straight could have been. He could have voted for Trump, Pence. Yeah, I think so. That's uh, he certainly seems like the sort of person who would have been just kind of like abandoned and left behind, and just kind of get real economic anxiety. Yeah, to use that euphemism. That's how he killed. That's why he killed that deer. I <laughs> know oh, he doesn't. Does it? Some some lady. Maybe that's what that represents. Maybe David Lynch predicted it all. Yeah, maybe. Like I th- I'm sure if you uh, really 
unpack Inland Empire. There's a lot of stuff in there about how uh, Wisconsin was right on the verge of voting for for someone like Trump. Mm. If only people had paid attention to uh, him sat with that cow advocating for Laura Dern's Best Actress nomination. In fact, I think if Laura Dern had won Best Actress for Inland Empire, things would be a lot better. Yeah, we wouldn't be in this mess. That's the butterfly effect that people didn't consider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for your consideration, <laughs> not the end of civilization as we know it, like, ten years later. Mm. Yeah. Our main topic this week is inspired by a recent release. Recent, uh, I guess it's weird because it had a staggered release. It came out in the UK, like, a month ago. <laughs> it came out in the in the States, like, just, just last week. Uh, it's inspired by the release of Jurassic World Hidden Kingdom. I always forget. Fallen which... Kingdom, Ed. Fallen Hidden Kingdom. Kingdom. Hidden Kingdom, I think maybe a, a level in Super Mario Odyssey. <laughs> um, uh, or, or it may be like a, maybe it's a Jackie Chan movie from a few years ago. Anyway, yeah, it's it's such a word salad that uh, I always find it hard to remember. Uh, and basically this is kind of what we're going to be talking about are kind of franchises that outstay their welcome, uh, mm. which I think maybe commercially isn't quite the case with the Jurassic World movies, which still make a lot of money. But certainly critically, I think people have lost uh, lost patience with them. And also I think it, it points to the question of why do some franchises, you know, that are juggernauts for a certain period of time fall by the wayside? Why do some just kind of keep going and going and going regardless of the failures uh, or, or in kind of rare instances fail and then kind of rise from the ashes in kind of spectacular fashion? Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's. I think. Should we talk about the film first? Should we talk about Jurassic yes. World to Jurassic Park Five, mm-hmm. um, which I like being called that. Um, <laughs> the The film itself is um, not very good. Um, yeah, it's, it's like the problem with Jurassic World. The first one was it. It made it a sequel. And mm. not a remake, because the problem is, is that when we and we talked about this on on the episode um, that we did on Jurassic World uh, a couple of yeah. years back, that if you say it's uh, a sequel, that you said it in the same world in which Jurassic Park existed, and Jurassic Park is a cautionary tale <laughs> of why you shouldn't perhaps play God and why you shouldn't open a theme park where there's a high likelihood of the attractions escaping and eating the tourists yeah. now Jurassic world asks us to believe that after not only that but the events of Jurassic park 2 where mm-hmm. um several extinct species make it to mainland america and cause yeah. untold damage uh in terms of you know in sheer dollar value and also psychologically physically a lot of deaths there um they eat a dog they eat a dog certainly um, very upsetting for Eleven-year-old uh, Edwin Davis. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. So then we have Jurassic Part Three, and Jurassic World asks us to believe that that the world we live in thought we, we'll accept that you know mistakes were made. <laughs> Let's try this again. What could possibly go wrong? Knowing that what happened possibly could have gone wrong. Now Jurassic World is essentially a remake of Jurassic Park. It follows the same story beats, the same central premise, but set in the world of Jurassic Park, it's very stupid. 
Um, And when your characters that are in a stupid situation continually make stupid decisions um, and do things that are, you know, excuses for poor writing, um, just just plain stupidity, it takes you out of the film. And you think, why am I watching this? (laughs) Why, Why am I invested in these characters? And why do I care that they're going through these, like, dramatic trials and tribulations? Because, to be honest, I'm cheering for the dinosaurs at this point. Mm-hmm. And that's how you feel watching Jurassic World. Jurassic World, yeah. as we know, was a very big success. A lot of people went to see it, made a lot of money. Now, Jurassic World 2, Jurassic Part 5, asks you, <laughs> asks you to believe and follow the same set of characters who continue to make more very silly decisions, mm-hmm. um, this time in a completely different setting where it's less about a park and more about the promise of a park that doesn't happen and how to possibly avoid an ecological disaster by knowingly causing another one. Um, right. It's, it really is um, a very poor movie, briefly enlightened by some excellent genre moments, which come from mm. uh, Mr. J.A. Bayona, who some of you may have known from the excellent movie The Orphanage, uh, also A Monster Calls that came out a couple of years ago, and The Impossible. I didn't see that one, uh, the one with, no, about no. the tsunami. But his other films are, are certainly pretty decent. Um, and he has some kind of nice, kind of haunted housey moments in this. But they're haunted house moments in a movie about dinosaurs. And none of them particularly make sense. Some of the mm-hmm. central ideas don't make sense. The central idea of the movie asks us to believe that a man who is a billionaire and is living comfortably as a billionaire is attempting to sell off dinosaurs to the highest bidder for millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> which, which you you watch it and you accept all these things. It's a fiction. It's and I don't want to be one of those guys who is like film criticism is not pointing out plot holes and a, a you know a flaw in a film or an artistic decision is not necessarily a plot hole. But when when the whole thing comes to a grinding halt because um, the the characters, the story, and the logic of the world relies on you suspending your disbelief to the point that you kind of may as well just take your brain out of your head and you may as well just, you know, not bother having a story at all. You may as well just have just images of dinosaurs. You may as well watch it like a screensaver of dinosaurs because the, it, at that point it makes no difference and it just pulls you wildly out of the fiction of the movie when you're questioning everything as being stupid. There's a, there's, I won't, I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but there's a third act reveal which when it comes, you're like, oh, Oh, okay, I didn't see that coming. And we all know how gullible I am. I definitely didn't see it coming. (laughs) But then when you stop and think about it, you're like, what? How on earth does that in any way make any kind of sense at all to any of the five films that have preceded it? And the implications it has for the world it's set in is insane. Um, Mm. And yeah, and it's, it's, it's the problem with... You've got a film which is very specific. And I'm going to draw mm-hmm. a parallel here to another Steven Spielberg movie that got franchise sequelized and turned terrible. So Jaws mm-hmm. and Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is about a theme park. They open it and it goes wrong. Jaws is about a small town terrorized by a shark. If you do them both more than once, it's stupid. Okay? Yeah. So Jaws 2, hey, same characters, different shark. Okay? <laughs> Fine. Jaws 3. Okay, we're making a theme park. Same place. Uh, I think one of the guys is related to Chief Brody. Shark again. Okay. Then Jaws the Revenge. A shark follows Brody's widow to the Caribbean. 
and terrors. You, you, you're trying to recreate a very specific set of circumstances and try and get the same result. Whereas you can't really do that. We can't keep opening theme parks. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So yeah. like, the, the, like Jurassic Park theme park. Okay, it's a great idea. It's a cautionary. It's, it's a modern science fiction fable. It's a great story. The film's pretty good. The book's excellent. And, you know, it's great. Okay, very successful. Let's write another book. Okay, so Crichton writes another book. And you're like, okay, it's tenuous. But, yeah, maybe there was another island where they bred dinosaurs. What could happen there? Okay, we get that. Right, this is surely over by now. No, Jurassic Park 3. Let's just get them back to the first island for reasons. Okay, at least... Throw in a made-up dinosaur. uh, Yeah. Like, I mean, don't get me started on dinosaurs. Though. You know how much I like most of these <laughs> yeah. made-up dinosaurs. Um, but like, <laughs> at least, at least Sam Neill's character is tricked into going back to the island. He's like, you know, and it's a believable set of machinations that gets him back to there. Yeah. Whereas, like, the guys who had tagging devices on a dinosaur, which is like four stories high, and lost it. who lost it and then their their course of action was to open the doors and go in and see if they could find it themselves Um, (laughs) I'd forgotten that was the that (laughs) that is the inciting incident in Jurassic World we have experts with a big capital E lots of them who decide the best course of action for a four story high dinosaur (laughs) it's tracker going off is that it's in there but we can't see it we know it can camouflage itself why don't we go in and leave the gate open. So that mm. is the central the central idea. And Jurassic World 2, Jurassic Park 5, is just chock full of these, right. these, these moments where you kind of think, you know, if, if this wasn't so stupid, I'd, I'd feel so much more connection to the characters and the plight of the people. Uh, and the plight of the... We're asked to care about the dinosaurs in this as, as kind of like, you know in, you know, ecological marvels that need to be preserved. But at the end, I was just like, fucking gas them all. Like, I really couldn't (laughs) give a shit. Like, um, if it just makes it stop. Because, you know, it's it's just one contrivance after the other that just gets to the point where you have got moved... You've moved very little distance from the fact that there's a theme park with dinosaurs in it. But yet you find yourself... Uh, in a haunted house movie with dinosaurs. And you're like, well, how did I get here? And it's not very interesting. Would That's my review of Jurassic World. <laughs> Would you say that Jurassic World 2, Jurassic Park 5, mm-hmm. is more honest about what it is than Jurassic World 1, Jurassic Park 4? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because like, one of the things that I think oh, in, in retrospect is like especially galling about Jurassic World 1 Jurassic Park 4 is that it, it it purports itself to be a real movie and or, or that it, it pretends that it has and tries to draft off of some of the sense of awe and majesty of the original movie as opposed to just what it is which is like a straight up disaster movie which mm. is kind of passable as. But, you know, the disaster doesn't mean anything because you don't care about the characters or anything they do. Does this one feel like it more fully embraces the fact that it's kind of just a kind of a schlocky, a schlocky mess? Because that, for me, has always been like the big saving grace of Jurassic Park 3, uh, Jurassic World Zero, mm. which <laughs> is that that is a completely 
cheesy, schlocky monster movie, like right down to um, the the should be legendary moment when uh, Alan Grant has a dream in which a, dra- a raptor is talking to him mm. <laughs> uh, and says Alan, which is really funny, <laughs> or or the thing that happens in the real world <laughs> isn't actually a dream where. Uh, they go into like a laboratory and he's looking at what he thinks is a raptor that's like stuffed or a model or something and then suddenly the raptor moves and like makes you think oh so not only are they smart enough to open doors now they're just smart enough to troll people mm. uh, like it, which is why for me i've always preferred that to like the the second jurassic park movie which is like has that weird mix of like ooh everything's kind of like full of awe but then also it ends as a real kind of cut rate Godzilla movie down right uh, with loads of like weird cheesy jokes like the the Schwarzenegger in Hamlet poster and stuff like that mm, yeah I mean I thought that the end of Jurassic World Jurassic Park 2 Attack of the Clones mm-hmm. was <laughs> uh, Spielberg saying I can't believe you've got to the end of this one I'm going to make sure there's now no more of these by having yeah. a you know a fleet of dinosaurs turn up on uh, a boat called the Venture, which was the name of the the one in King Kong, uh, yes. and recreate all of King Kong but with dinosaurs at the end, and that maybe we'd all like we'd all pack up and go home after that, and there's no possible way we could have any more Jurassic Park movies. But lo and behold, here we are. Um, it is a bit more honest, I would say. Uh, it certainly acknowledges its uh, predecessors' flaws a bit more. Maybe too much, obviously, that some of the sexual politics, the gender politics in Jurassic World 1, Jurassic Park 4, were, you know, questionable. And they certainly make a point of uh, the fact that um, Bryce Dallas Howard is not wearing high heels in this one. Uh, yeah, they lean pretty hard into that. But like, there's, Did there's... they get Tarantino to shoot that scene? Uh, yeah, she's like slowly putting her foot in into this shoe uh, to a kind <laughs> of like a long forgotten 70s pop track. <laughs> but there, there is, like, and this is it, I don't know whether this is a joke. If it's a joke, it's kind of funny. If it's not, it's kind of pretty bad, uh, like, um, filmmaking and writing. But like, they reintroduce Chris Pratt's character. Mm-hmm. Chad, Chad Manleyson, um, <laughs> by, so Bryce Dallas Howard has to go and find him. And, you know, where does a man go to get peace from, uh, the crazy mixed up, uh, kind of genetic disaster that he was involved in all those years ago. He's, uh, beside a lake, uh, building his own cabin from scratch on his own, mm-hmm. uh, just, just hauling up the beams, nailing them up <laughs> with his hammer. Cause that's what a man does. He retreats to the wilderness. And he hits things with a hammer. He builds his own cabin on like what looks like a ranch that must cost like billions of dollars <laughs> just for the land. And he's just there making himself a house. He probably chopped the trees down himself. Uh, but he's mm-hmm. got a little caravan. He has, probably has a beer in there listening to like Dave Matthews Band or something. <laughs> I don't know. But like, you know, it's very much like that. I mean, like I said, there are some pretty cool moments, some very cool visual moments. But yeah, just like... Here's an example, right? So the film opens with some mercenaries going back to the park that Jurassic World happened in. Jurassic World, Mm -hmm. I believe it was called. So they're in a submarine, right? And they go in and the doors open and they go into the underwater enclosure where we saw a Mosasaur uh, in the previous thing, kind of kill the uh, Indominus Rex or whatever it was called. Yep. Now, one of the characters looks scared and the other one turns to the other and says... Don't worry, 
whatever's in here is dead by now. Very, very <laughs> confidently. And, you know, spoiler, it's not. Mm. And the guys who are in the helicopter helping him out also know this. Now, it's a very cool scene. There's some great visual stuff in there. I was actually pretty scared. It was, you know, very atmospheric, very well done. Then we have the credits, then we have another scene. In that scene, we see uh, people who are trying to save dinosaurs watching lots and lots of drone footage of the island, which shows that nothing's dead. <laughs> in, in the, everything that's in there survived. Whatever it is. And, like, and people in the world know that there are dinosaurs on this island that survived this huge ecological disaster that, that received probably blanket press coverage for quite some time. Do you know what I mean? Just think about how long we have we deal with things in news cycles these days. If an island full of dinosaurs went into total carnage meltdown, it would it would stay on the news for at least a week. Um, so we know yeah. that like there's this stuff, but yet these guys went in anyway, saying, "Don't worry, <laughs> whatever's in here is probably dead." So instantly, I mean, we know they're going to die anyway because they're mercenaries. They're just grunts and stuff. But, like, just think about what they're doing. The writers couldn't think of any other way of getting those people in the situation other than to making them stupid, which yeah. is an insult to our intelligence, frankly. Yeah, so it doesn't, doesn't sound like a great movie. No. By, by all accounts. Um, I'll probably still end up seeing it just because, you know, I've, I'm too deep with this mm. series now. Uh, <laughs> and And there is, you know, there is obviously a an elemental sense of enjoyment to watching, you know, dinosaurs fuck things up. Mm. But you kind of uh, wish uh, it wasn't associated with Jurassic Park, which is not even a movie, like you and I have talked about this, it's not even a movie that either of us are, like, mm. massively in love with. <laughs> but it's, like, it's a movie that I think has its kind of, like, heart in its right place and does approach blockbuster filmmaking as an art form as opposed to a brand extension. Mm. Yeah. And... Like, everything that Jurassic Park goes for, it nails. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas Jurassic World is being pulled in so many different directions. And like I say, it is, it is full full of these tiny little moments that are really effective. Like, the the whole third act is set in this... this it's essentially a haunted mansion they release dinosaurs into... But mm -hmm. like every now and then, you're completely jolted out of how stupid, like out of the film, and realize how stupid this all is, and like the fact that, oh, okay, you're like, okay, this is a cool idea, this is a cool central conceit, and then something happens, you're like, ah, no, <laughs> no, why is this happening? Like, this is only happening to move us forward to the next scene, and when you realize that, it's very difficult to become emotionally invested in anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think in that, the case of that, like, like you said, and Jaws, you know, Jurassic Park and Jaws as franchises, the problem there is that basically you had a premise that could support a single movie. Mm. And then, like, if you were to continue it, like, the only way to do it would be just to remake it into oblivion. Like, each time, a different cast and different people involved, because trying to tell that same story over a long period of time it very quickly makes no sense. Mm. Like, like, even in Jurassic uh, in the Lost World, Jurassic Park, the confusingly ordered sequel, um, <laughs> mm. in terms of the title word order, um, like the the hoops they leap through to explain why Jeff Goldblum is going back are 
so tedious like mm. it's all down to, it's all down to like insurance reasons and it's just like why are you telling me this this is not a fun way to start your summer blockbuster you know and and the, the series has only got more tenuous from there but like, i was trying to think of other examples of series that basically after the first movie there was no real reason to continue on and that's largely why people lost interest and the first one that leapt out to me was uh, rambo mm-hmm. because the first movie first blood is like because it's obviously based on a, a novel which famously ends with the main character of john rambo dying it's like a self-contained story about like a vietnam vet who comes home is abused by police officers and goes crazy and like kills a bunch of them uh and there's like no real reason to continue that story or at least no real reason to continue it in the tone in which the movie was made which is very much like a like a hangover of the 70s Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it ha- kind of has a lot of those kind of concerns, anti-authoritarianism and things like that. Uh, so in some respects, like they, the, the Stallone and the people he worked with on the subsequent movies kind of understood that, which is why the subsequent movies are completely in the opposite direction. It's all about how John Rambo is the best killer who's <laughs> ever lived and he's going to go out there and he's going to murder everyone, which is not exactly what you think the series is going to do after... The first movie ends, which is that he has, like, destroyed this small town and murdered a bunch of cops, which doesn't seem like the sort of thing that would get you on the government's kind of list of people we're going to go to in a crisis. Mm. Um, uh, and that, that series kind of, like, ran out of juice fairly quickly as a result, which is like, okay, there's something to the fun of uh, of Stallone at his most testosterone but... Like, it, it's not a sustainable thing. And, like, after another two movies, it kind of died a death. And then he, uh, in, a, in a misguided attempt to revise all of his old characters in the mid-2000s after Rocky Balboa was a man, minor success, he brought Rambo back uh, for a movie that tried to bring all of the nuance that he is known for to um, to real instances of uh, ethnic cleansing, mm. which w- was not a good choice. I think it's funny to say, and this is it, when you talk about a franchise moving so far away from what it started as, that you you, you forget that in in First Blood, he's a kind of like scarred Vietnam vet who uh, is abused by police, like you say, and ends up killing mm. a bunch of them kind of uh, on his own terms in the wild. Uh, yeah. And then in the third one, he's fighting with the Taliban <laughs> against <laughs> the Russians. Uh, yeah. Um, which is, you know, a great 80s switcheroo that perhaps hasn't aged that well <laughs> but yeah it's it's like sequelitis is something we talk about a lot um mm-hmm. where you know you think the premise is contained and should only be done once the only way to capture that lightning in a bottle again is to do the exact same thing again so mm. more recently the hangover yeah so the hangover the first one is uh, a self-contained story of a stag do where they all go out and they, well, they've got a hangover and they've pieced together and it's kind of amusing. And then the second one is that again in a different place. And the third one is that again. And that's it, really. You mm. haven't moved it on or or deepened the story or the, the, the ideas because it's a cash grab. It's, you know, done to, to uh, you know, make a bit more money out of uh, a premise that was kind of thin to begin with. Um, yeah. Franchises, though, are different because they're, built to last i suppose and i think maybe a prototype of something that kind of lost all its goodwill on its second and third installments is something like the matrix mm. um like but the, the thing is is that the wakowskis bless them like they always aim high 
They very oh, yeah. rarely hit, but you know, I be I hate the Matrix sequels. I, I think the Matrix is a good movie. Like mm-hmm. there's there's slightly less there than meets the eye. I would say uh, a lot of people seem to think there's more there than meets the eye, but I'm not one of those people. And I hate the sequels, and I think they're very bad movies. But some of the ideas in there are weird. Yeah, <laughs> and I, and I like those. I like uh, if you're going to fail, at least try some of it. Don't just do the same thing again. Yeah, they are probably the least corporate sequels that have ever been made because it really is a case of them going, okay, this movie was... The the first Matrix was an out-of-nowhere success. No one thought it was going to be the sensation that it was. No one thought it was going to make that much money, that it was going to be a cultural touchstone for a generation of action movies and comedies as well. Let's not forget that like every subpar comedy over the next couple of years would have a, a bullet time sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some good ones as well. Space kind of uh, did some really fun stuff r- uh, riffing on The Matrix. But when they were told, okay, you want we want you to make more of this, they just threw every crazy idea they had into it. And yeah, I, I am also of the opinion that those movies uh, are not very good. Mm. But like you say, you can't deny that they have an authorial stamp and vision to them. You can't deny that those were made with the point of view of just saying, okay, we're going to tell the biggest, boldest, most personal story that we can with this level of budget that we have. And like whether or not it succeeds is another matter. You know, it's, it's very different to go back to Jurassic Park between that and the Lost World where pretty much everyone involved clearly doesn't think it's a good idea to make this movie. <laughs> like Spielberg had kind of lost interest John Crichton kind of had to be, Michael Crichton rather, had to kind of be forced more or less to write a sequel so that they could make another movie. Like, it doesn't really feel as if anyone involved really has that sense of, like, luster for returning to that material, whereas the Wachowskis obviously did. Mm. And let's not forget that, that Michael Crichton had to retcon the material. Yeah, several deaths. <laughs> Ian Malcolm <laughs> dies in the first book. Mm. Um, and yeah, they have to, uh, uh, pretty quickly, hastily reprint that and have, have him live somehow and then be blackmailed yeah. into returning. Just kind of walk out and just be like, no, I didn't <laughs> like just, just gaslight the reader. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is why like, you know, your, your Star Treks and your Star Wars and your, your, your other, your big franchises, because they've got a big, uh, sandbox to play in. You can mm. kind of you can tell many stories in many different ways, but when you're like, there's these guys on an island, there's a shark in the water, yeah, you ha- you're having to do the the same. You can't say, well, it's a it's a different type of shark. You know what I mean? Mm. It's a different island because uh, you're moving too far away from Jaws. You can't call it Jaws. Um, yeah. you know, we all know that Deep Blue Sea is a masterpiece. You can do movies <laughs> with sharks in water. It's fine. Um, yeah. Um, but you know, when you're having to try and connect it to, you know, what got you there in the first place, you have to start jumping through some hoops. Yeah, I think uh, to go back to, to you, you mentioned Star Trek there. Star Trek, I think, was a was an interesting example because that's a, a franchise that uh, wore out its welcome twice over mm. in a short space of space of time. Because like you had the original run of movies from the first one in. 79 until the sixth one which i think was 89 maybe or 88 so there you had like a spotty track record some movies are 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 very very good the second one is great the fourth one is a lot of fun the third one's okay 
the sixth one is kind of like a nice note to end one the fifth one's just one of the worst things i've ever seen um it's basically william shatner directs himself beating up god uh which uh, on a metatextual level is great mm-hmm. but as a as a movie is not that edifying um so they kind of left on a note think okay this seems like a, a good way to end it but then when they decided to start making movies with the next generation cast then they did generations which was where some of the cast from the original series show up and it all feels like really awkward it's like oh so kirk's back and you brought him here just to get killed by malcolm mcdowell and your big action set piece is a couple of old men punching each other um it's not necessarily the most the, the best way for those characters to go out when they'd had like a perfectly nice way to end it all like before and then the next generation movies like they sort of course corrected with first contact which is a, a decent action movie and a bad star trek story again a lot of it is like uh patrick stewart playing like a bruce willis style action hero which isn't quite in keeping with the cerebral character he played in the tv series but whatever but then all the other ones are just like really shitty substandard sci-fi action movies and then by the time you get to nemesis which is where they tried to make it all dark and strange and tom hardy's there mind raping people (laughs) uh it's yeah that was one that kind of really wore out this welcome even worse than the the time they had worn out their welcome before Mm. necessitating then having to basically go all right we're just gonna forget all of this and just bring in new actors mm. if you're talking about how short amount of time it's taken for a franchise to outstay its welcome i'd probably say like transformers about two and a half minutes mm. yeah but unfortunately they're all seven hours long so. yeah i think um something that is in terms of um, not trying to do the same thing over and over again, the, the guys who did the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the first one was a lot of fun and a kind of knockabout, swashbuckling-like adventure that you would go and see at the cinema and say, oh, I had a nice time doing that. And then someone says, do you mm. want to spend some more time with these characters? And you say, yeah, cool, let's do that. And then you're like, well, do you want to spend more time with these characters not having fun, and mm. <laughs> just doing it for twice as long? Um, in like stuff that makes no sense whatsoever. So instead of the just script making, that is clearly not finished, yeah, um, like you don't just do the same thing again. But you're not trying to do anything interesting or exciting. You're just doing it for longer. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's one that I find like the longevity of kind of hard to fathom because that really is one where. The first one is such, like everyone's said this, uh, Lindsay Ellis did a, a great video series about the uh, video essay about the first movie in particular about the idea that it's like lightning in a bottle. And The Lord of the Rings is kind of the same thing as well. Like you just happen to have the right creative ca- uh, talent involved, the right people, and you just kind of take a big chance on a genre that's unfashionable and it just happens to connect. So... Uh, and obviously when you make so much money like that and, and something like Pirates of the Caribbean where you're not really wedded to any previous story or anything, you can just basically go, okay, just throw in whatever people associate with pirates and we'll just go. You know, we'll have him fight Davy Jones, whoever that is. We'll have them go after the, the Fountain of Youth. You know, they'll they'll just throw in any old gobbledygook that they can think of. You know, that, that opens up the possibilities for exciting action stuff and it also means that like they can if they were good movies you know they could just reinvent it every time and do something fun but instead they were like everyone really likes this jack character 
let's double down on everything he did before, but mm. until the point where it's just a, a screeching, annoying caricature. Yeah, you kind of take something you think people liked, and uh, yeah, you uh, you put all your eggs in that basket and hope for the best. And then when that doesn't work, you keep, just keep doing it to diminishing returns. That's essentially what's happened with those movies. Yeah, it's like, it, it is, and obviously, like, the analogy uh, doesn't quite as work now, or maybe it makes even more sense now. But, like, the idea was that, you know, you, you couldn't build a movie around Han Solo, for example. Like, that was that was the example that people always used for why the subsequent Pirates movies don't work, is that, you know, uh, Johnny Depp in that performance, deeply abusive arsehole Johnny Depp, his performance there was like the 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 flavor that kind of brought the movie to life but when you build the entire movie around him or or you make him kind of more central to it uh it just becomes like sickening it is like it is basically like doing the cinnamon challenge mm. it's like oh this thing that's nice when you sprinkle it on something suddenly when you put a whole spoonful of it in your mouth makes you throw up mm. yeah a whole spoonful of depth is uh <laughs> not an appealing prospect Especially in the light of that Rolling Stone profile, where it just seems like it'd probably be large, mostly drugs, <laughs> mm. uh, as they as they often hint. You know, like how he leaves the room feeling despondent, then comes back buoyant. It's mm. like, oh, I wonder what happened there. Yeah. Hey, he got he got an interesting text. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> he saw a, he saw a nice picture of a kitten on Twitter. Yeah. He checked he checked his uh, his portfolio. Mm. Yeah, it's like oh. Corn futures are doing well. I don't know. I don't know anything about the stock market. <laughs> no, all I know is from trading places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I still don't understand that. Yeah, I know I know they're going to kill them. I know mm-hmm. that much. <laughs> kind of the big, the big kind of overarching genre of franchises that outstay their welcome, it pretty much all focuses on, like, horror movies, basically. Mm. Like, that's the clear example, I think partly because they're very cheap to make, and they are often can be boiled down to the simple thrill of just like inventing more interesting ways to kill people. And I think that kind of draws people in and because horror fans just in general tend to really get excited about, you know, seeing characters over and over again and getting to experience these kind of like worlds over and over. Um, those ones are, are a clear case of movies that are, are of series where the first movie or even maybe the first couple of movies are like, good and classics and really well regarded but even like the best like first movie very pr- quickly devolves into things being terrible like the the golfing quality between like the first halloween movie and pretty much every subsequent one except for the third one which has nothing to do with michael myers is staggering <laughs> mm. <laughs> like how quickly that franchise completely devolves into bad movies that audiences kind of showed up for for the kind of the lazy kills and then eventually just completely lost interest in it. Mm. I think you're right about the horror movie um, genre in in that they are cheap to make and you can just kind of bang out quite a a lot of them. But, you know, it it harks back to what I was saying about the Jurassic World characters and, you know, the machinations of the plot being so stupid, it pulls you out. You're like, why would these characters do that? Now, that's part of the excitement of horror movies. Like, you know, and you you buy into that kind of social contract by watching a horror movie that the people in it are going to do stupid things and end up dead. And it's yeah. almost a thrill of the one of finding out how it's going to happen or or who's going to survive or how, you know, you know, and that's where good horror movies 
that conform to that template and that kind of uh, that 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 style, I guess. That's the thrill of watching those to see how they'll pull it off. Uh, and some of them mm. aren't very inventive, and some of them are just like, oh, let's you know kill him with a giant rock or something. Yeah. But you know, you you accept that by watching the horror movie. That is one of the the tropes uh, that you're buying into. But when you're watching a um, you know a kind of tentpole blockbuster with all the money in the world you can throw at it and all the writing talent available and all the you know the pick of any director you want and infinite cash to solve the problems, you're less forgiving. Of uh, of uh, character stupidity and bad writing, yeah. Because like when you do watch a horror movie, like at least part of the fun is like people like, and, and this is certainly something I've noticed watching horror movies in the US. Because this isn't something that happens quite so much in the UK, in my experience. But people being like, "Oh no, don't go in there," you mm-hmm. know, like when people are doing things like that is part of the fun. It is like a roller coaster of being like. People knowing that bad things are coming, and the fun being the being us having the the, the knowledge that the characters don't have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the basic suspense of them, of the, the, the us knowing there's a killer or you know whatever, and them not knowing and knowing that not knowing that they shouldn't go into you know that uh, you know that garage and that that guy in the uh, scream mask is not just a guy who's there at the party mm-hmm. like that's someone else that's another example that like i think scream is kind of like a great example of a one and done movie that should not have spawned three sequels and a tv series because mm. it kind of says everything it needed to say about horror movies that it possibly could in a single movie and then all the other ones they are clearly motivated from that perspective being like, oh, we didn't think the first one would do that well, so let's just bring the killer back and keep doing it. But they're, yeah. obviously, I think they they tend to be of a slightly higher budget and gloss, I would say, than some of the the other horror movies that like your Nightmare on Elm Streets or uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacres, which end up spawning whole uh, franchises. Mm. I mean, Scream's a great movie that mm. makes some you know amazing points uh, about horror films and kind of satirizing them satirizes them to a degree other two unseen until that kind of postmodern late 90s kind of uh, boom uh, of that kind of caper um but and the the sequels make a lot of uh, the same points about sequels and the mm. idea of sequelization but then after that they've got they've got nothing <laughs> there's nothing in the tank yeah. Uh, so then it's just like, hey, there's people in the mask, let's do some uh, kind of cool scenes. Uh, those films aren't bad, they just have nothing to say. Yeah, and that was the, the thing that was really bracing about the original Scream, was it not only was it was a really effective horror movie, but it was one that really, you know, made a lot of points, which since, I think, have been talked to death about the, mm-hmm. the, the clichés of horror movies, like... Uh, in some ways, I think Scream was probably detrimental to criticism about horror movies because suddenly everyone felt they were an expert because they heard what Skeet Ulrich talk about all of the the the, the final girl and don't go off alone and don't have sex mm. and things like that. Like mm. once that was pointed out, it's like, oh, I guess everyone knows all of the tricks. So every, suddenly, all horror movies end up getting super self conscious. Mm. Yeah, and then it was just too self conscious to exist, and now we've gone full circle again, and we're getting good old fashioned horror again. Yeah, I think uh, a franchise that I'm kind of surprised did die out just because, like, it produced five movies which all did about the same level of business and was 
always seemed to do okay and always at least seemed to justify its own reason for existence was the Final Destination movies. Oh, yeah. Because they produced five of those between 2000 and 2011. So you got a movie pretty much every three years. And every time it came packaged with, like, a pretty amazing trailer. Like, uh, those trailers were always, like, so good at, you know, setting up whatever the big opening disaster was going to be that was going to kill a bunch of people, but these handful of people would escape. And the fact that, you know, the villain of it is, you know, the ethereal form of death Mm -hmm. that's just going to kill these people in ridiculously complex ways meant that it, it kind of was more infinitely renewable than a lot of these other ones like because each film had to have like a new cast because most of the old cast didn't make it and they had to come up with these new inventive ways for people to die and really the only reason i can think of why it stopped being made after the 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 one that came out in 2011 was that they were just really expensive for horror movies like they all cost 30 or 40 million dollars and at that point no one was interested in mid-budget horror movies they all wanted to make stuff like paranormal activity another series that kind of ran out of steam fairly quickly after a couple of movies that kind of really shook up the entire genre for at least a few years uh but cost a pittance and so were wildly profitable even if they failed Mm. i think what comes with like high concept films like that is just you keep going until the ideas run out Mm. you know what i mean like they you know how many times can you try and how many different ways can we see fate take people's lives and death kind of kill people and then the same with the paranormal activities well okay we've done a found footage one let's do a nanny cam one you know let's Mm. do a cctv one let's let's try and take it as far as we possibly can and then you know people will vote with their feet once it gets boring and i think that's the case with both of those franchises i did find it very funny when the big innovation of i think the third paranormal activity i think that was the first one directed by the catfish guys which Mm -hmm. was a, a weird way for their their career to go uh was when their big innovation was they stuck a camera on a rotating fan uh which uh was on its face a very funny thing but it was kind of effective because obviously the horror or the 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 scares of the early movies were the use of a static camera and things appearing in frame and kind of creepy things happening outside of the view so the idea of a camera that no one has control over kind of just glimpsing things, it's kind of very ghost watch in that way of mm. like just happening to glimpse things off in the distance and then the camera moving away and then you knowing there's going to be like, what, 20 seconds before the camera comes around and not knowing if the scary thing is going to still be there or not. Um, it was kind of, that was kind of effective. But yeah, that, it, it, it was very limiting uh, in terms of what you could do with that series, especially... I think also that the problem with a lot of horror movies, and this really affects the Saw franchise, is if they're tied to a specific character as the villain or to a specific kind of like phenomenon, very quickly you end up with a point where you have to, the, 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 the makers feel like they have to really explain the plot or deepen the mythology. And at a certain point that just becomes really uninteresting or becomes so convoluted that it's off-putting to casual fans who may be just there because they want to see how Jigsaw is going to force someone to mutilate themselves this time. Mm, yeah, I kind of stopped watching Saw after Saw 1 um, yeah. because it's not really my cup of tea. 
Um, mm. And also, like, in my head, the... And, and this has been borne out by people who I know enjoy it. They they get the the joy, if that's the right word, in seeing people mutilate themselves in terrible ways and bad things happen yeah. to people and, and that kind of gore. And, like, I, I've got a finite amount of that curiosity in me, and that's about 90 minutes. Uh, which, <laughs> so the Saw movie, I watched it, and I'm like, okay, that, that, is, that has filled that gap. I now no longer need to see any more of these movies. I, I have a certain degree of nostalgia for the Saw franchise, and I think I may have talked about this on the show before, but, like, the first one came out in 2004 uh, when I moved up to Sheffield to go to uni, and one of my main memories of, like, the, the of when I was at uni and also, like, the, the four or five years afterwards was, like, every autumn, you know, every September, you the term would start and you'd walk down the street and you'd see a different saw poster in the bus stop. <laughs> and it was just, it was like the leaves turn and there's some horrifying imagery up in, uh, up in crooks, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and, and like, and, and every year there was like a new controversy over whether or not you can show like blood spattered teeth on the side of a bus, <laughs> you know? Uh, and even though, those kind of things were horrifying. Like I have this, I, the fact that those move, they put out a movie a year for the, the whole seven years does kind of fill me with a certain kind of warm, nostalgic glow of being like, Oh, you know, where was I in my life when the Saw 2 poster came out? Oh, you know, I just moved into that house, you know? And that, so there is kind of like, I don't, I don't have a great affection for the movies. Cause like you, I have a very low tolerance for just abject misery being visited upon people. But um, the the broader accoutrements around the Saw movie, I have a lot of affection for. Weirdly, mm. and the last kind of like franchise that I I thought of, which kind of falls under this this criteria, but really pulled out of the nosedive in a spectacular way, was the Fast and Furious franchise, which yeah. seemed seemed to be done after three movies commercially because the third one didn't do very well, and then. They took like a couple of years off, and then they suddenly rocketed to unprecedented levels of success. Mm, well, that's you know a pun intended gear shift um, mm. in being movies about kind of races and undercover cops and you know illegal uh, uh, drag racing, your know, rings and stuff, to being spy movies. Um, yes, and just kind of like uh, rebooting mid franchise and this is i'm saying this i've i've not seen a single one of these the fast and furious <laughs> movies apart from i've the seen six a bunch of them. seen i've seen six in spanish on buses uh, yes <laughs> but i've not seen any of the others um but I, I i think that's what happened is that correct is that is that fair yes there's someone pointed out i think around the release of the seventh one whichever one heavily featured in its marketing a scene in which the characters um, skydive out of a plane in their cars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the seventh one, where it's all this kind of like really elaborate, insane stunt work going into it. Uh, and someone pointed out that the first movie revolves around them trying to steal some uh, PS1s or something from the back of a truck. You know, like really that is where the series starts, is them just being kind of like a street racing gang that grabs panasonic televisions or whatever you know it's like oh i think it's it may even be like vhs players it's something like a real antiquated technology that doesn't exist anymore um 
that they were Robin, and then subsequently they are, you know, these kind of globe-trotting ep- epics where they're going all over the place, and uh, with this kind of like again a, a series with like a, a, a weirdly complex chronology where the first two movies follow each other, but then the fourth, fifth, and sixth movies all take place before the third. <laughs> Uh, uh, and it's all kind of like ridiculous but uh, yeah there I think the fact that they shifted up and kind of matched what was happening in action movies in general around that time you know post um, superhero boom like the idea of just saying okay we don't need to be wedded to reality we can just go go fucking nuts Mm. uh, I think really benefited them I think also you know that's probably the reason why the Bond franchise has lasted as long as it has because that's a franchise where uh, and this happens to its detriment, you know, when it does a Moonraker or a Spectre, where it kind of uh, gloms onto a cinematic genre or approach to movie making that ends up being like super detrimental to it. But for the most part, the fact is this really elastic franchise where if they go in a direction that ends up being like disastrous, they can just reboot and recast the lead. They can kind of keep chugging along. Uh, and I think that, you know, that that was sort of the case with the Fast and Furious franchise is that they found an approach to their storytelling that weirdly ended up allowing them to turn from what could have been like a relic of the early two- 2000s to one of the preeminent action franchises of our day. Mm. And, and yeah, they can they had enough scope after they decided it was going to be, you know, insane shit involving cars to go mm. in whatever way they wanted to. It was just what were the limits of... Well, the absolute limits of stunt work and, and kind of stupidness that they can come up with. And when you are... If it was grounding it in reality all the time, in some kind of reality, and each instalment had to be a different cop infiltrating a different drag racing ring mm-hmm. um, and I, with a different guy, then, you know, it would get very tiresome. But, you know, they kind of said, well, we're going to we're gonna just kind of go off the page here and cars and characters and that's it. And, you know, we're just going to keep going and going and going and, and just doing more and more crazy shit, which is going to be surprising. And then weirdly managed to deepen... Uh, people's feelings towards that film and those characters. Yeah, like the fact that people genuinely love those movies. And I think it's hard to kind of pass how much of it is ironic. Mm. Like, I feel like I certainly love the fifth one, unironically. I think that is a really hugely enjoyable action movie. Uh, but I think, like, the subsequent movies have been kind of terrible. <laughs> They've not been particularly good. But... Uh, you know, I think I think a lot of people do have kind of affections for the uh, the kind of unpretentious cheesiness of those movies. The the fact that everyone says family fifty thousand times a movie, uh, and just the fact that everyone seems really committed to these incredibly silly premises, probably goes a long way to instilling a certain degree of affection for those movies, even if like very few of them stand up to even a tiny modicum of scrutiny mm, yeah we end this week's episode as we end all of our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and that we think you the listener will enjoy as well matt what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week um i finally caught up with uh, the current sensation of the netflix in the the show queer eye um mm. which uh, has been a huge surprise to me uh, given my only familiarity with the uh, the franchise 
being um, uh, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, which is the predecessor to this show, made by the same people, I believe, um, but not involving the same uh, kind of principal cast, I guess. And back then it was it was a show that was on Bravo, I think, um, yep. which probably tells you all you need to know about it. Um, and it was uh, kind of a schlocky title. Uh, and I watched a couple of episodes and I thought, oh, this is okay, this is... Right, but I don't need to see any more. But they've kind of rebooted it on Netflix, and it's just called Queer Eye for reasons um, that are kind of apparent as you watch it. And um, it is uh, not only entertaining, um, but also uh, some of the most uh, uplifting, positive, and life affirming uh, mm. television that I have uh, recently had the pleasure to enjoy, with um, it being um, by turns a uh, kind of how to. Uh, switch up your life and uh, g- give yourself a French tuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. Uh, which is take some avocados. Yep. Uh, yep. I mean, yeah. Make some dip. Uh, yep. Paint your house grey and blue. Uh, tuck your shirt in the front. Wash your face, uh, and then uh, uh, become a better, face your demons. Yeah. Become a yeah. Become a better person um, in general. Because uh, what the joy of queer eye is is having. The people who are made over, and I kind of lose, use that term loosely because it's not really a makeover show, the people who do it are people that you would not expect to be open to five pretty flamboyant homosexuals <laughs> coming into <laughs> their lives and um, kind of uh, taking them apart piece by piece, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not like, you know, they're not kind of like going into like the military and like breaking them down to nothing so they can rebuild them. We're talking mm. about people who you would expect. And the whole show, I think it's a lot of mileage out the fact that it's set in the deep South. Um, yes. um, people you would expect not to have um, some more kind of liberal views and having your uh, preconceptions challenged um, by your view of certain people. And it is uh, an absolutely joyous show. Um, that I watched all of in about three days. And it's uh, all on Netflix, and there's two seasons, and I'm pretty sure a third season's going to be uh, forthcoming because it is fairly ubiquitous. It is everywhere. Mm. It is um, the Fab Five uh, are going to uh, flog it until uh, they can flog it no more. Um, but yes, a great show, life affirming. It makes you super warm inside. You'll cry as well, probably, a couple of times. Um, and there's a lot of important things in there. It's kind of funny to say that like in, in a time of like toxic masculinity and times where kind of, uh, what it is to be a man is, is so, uh, kind of like open, uh, Mm. is, is embracing of all of that is, there's a lot in there about kind of self care and looking after yourself. And also that doesn't just extend to like saying, Oh, I've got a new pair of shoes. Um, mm. it's about much more than that, which is not what I expected to get from that show, but I got it in spades. Yes, uh, heartily recommend that as well. Second that recommendation. Uh, I think that's a really wonderful, wonderful show, and some of the episodes are deeply, deeply moving. The one that I always think of is the one in the first season where, or the first half of the season, because it's bas- it's clear that they shot it all at the same time. Yeah. They just split it in two, because that's what Netflix do now. Mm-hmm. Um where they uh, work with the 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 one gay kind of subject 
uh, yeah. the guy who they want to help come out to his stepmother mm-hmm. so that because he's he's kind of been hiding who he is for such a long time i found that episode uh really really sweet and really moving and uh, i i think those guys like i say are just such a well a, a, a font of positivity that it's hard, hard to come away from any episode of that show without a tear in your eye mm-hmm I am going to recommend a different Netflix show that just recently <laughs> came back. Uh, this episode, not sponsored by Netflix, uh, but they they produce some good stuff and an ocean of shit. Um, mm-hmm. But some of it, some of their stuff is good. And for my money, uh, maybe their best show is the series, the show Glow, uh, which uh, came back for its second season this week and uh it was every bit as good if not better than the first season the whole cast are still still really great i think uh it's one of the funniest netflix shows uh it's genuinely incredibly funny you know i think it gets a lot of mileage out of the setting of being you know the the backstage antics of the production of this show called the gorgeous ladies of wrestling uh the cast are all brilliant you know alison brie has been one of the the most uh wonderful presences on on american television for a decade at this point you know going from community and her kind of supporting role on mad men through to now uh, and also her vocal work on bojack horseman another great netflix show or again not sponsored mm. uh but but you know around her you know you got people like betty gilpin who is uh, is great as her former best friend now real life and kind of uh kayfabe rival uh, uh rival uh kia stevens uh who plays the character of welfare queen is particularly good in this this season i think uh the show really commits to grappling with i think some of the the thornier issues of it's the the, the kind of stories it's telling like that the fourth episode is all about um kia stevens's character going to see her son at stanford university for parents day and then he finds out that she is on this wrestling show and that she uh, learns like the character that she's playing and he decides he's going to come and watch her perform and so and it it tackles uh, in a very kind of powerful and nuanced way you know the question of what it means to play a character like that who is kind of really offensive and kind of uh, as he puts it kind of like a minstrel character which I, I thought was really fascinating it also in this kind of like post me too moment there's the it handles stories around feminism and sexual harassment in ways that are really tough to watch but handled really really well uh, but also like i say it's, it's really funny it has uh, the the eighth episode of this season which is actually just an episode of the of the TV show Glow that they they kind of produce uh, is one of the funniest things I've seen all year. It's just dense with kind of like really great jokes and I think pays off a lot of interesting storylines for the season. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it's wonderful to see that the show has not only not kind of fallen on its face after a great first season which is a problem that a lot of shows do but has really kind of deepened and and uh you know kind of grown which is not always a given with great tv shows and i'm i'm really hopeful that the show comes back for a a third season which i'm sure it will because it's one of their kind of buzzier shows and that it continues to develop as uh the great show that it is Mm, i loved the first season i watched the whole first season in 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 kind of uh, about a week, I think, um, and yeah, it only dropped like two days ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm super, super excited to get into that because it's a, it's a very good show. And also, if you ever wonder what happened to Kate Nash, <laughs> now you know. 
yes, if you ever wondered what happened between me seeing her at Glastonbury in 2010 and now she went on Glow. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, leave us a review and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs>